Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Well, another month has gone by and it's time for a brand new episode of The Mod Pod. Whether you're a new listener or you've been tuning in since the beginning, thanks for finding your way to us. This month, we have a little bit of everything, from dry eye to ptosis to ocular melanoma. Then we end it all with one of my favorites, where we get up close and personal with one of your colleagues. For now, though, we're going to keep the who a surprise, unless, of course, you listen to our last episode and remember the teaser. So let's dive right in with our first topic, dry eye disease in the pediatric population. Let's give a listen to Ahmad Fami, co-founder of Eyes on Dry Eye, founder of the Twin Cities OSD Symposium, and director of optometric services at Minnesota Eye Consultants in Bloomington and Minnetonka, Minnesota, as he discusses common culprits of dry eye in young patients. Dry eye is sometimes pretty obvious to diagnose, but more often, patients can have significant symptoms related to early evaporation of the tear film and chronic inflammation with minimal epithelial compromise, too subtle to see at the slit lamp. It can be even more challenging to piece together an accurate diagnosis if your patient is just not able to articulate symptoms clearly or doesn't understand exactly what's bothering her or him. This is often the case with our pediatric patients. For these reasons, pediatric dry eye often goes undiagnosed and undertreated even more frequently than in our adult patients. To be a good dry eye specialist, you really have to have excellent detective skills and try to take in as much valuable information as possible from both the parent and the patient. Pediatric dry eye is less common in general practice than adult dry eye but kids may come in for a seemingly routine comprehensive exam with symptoms such as itching, burning, puffy lids, light sensitivity, irritation, tired eyes, or variable vision. And parents or family members might not detect the severity of these symptoms or connect them with the negative impact that they can have on the development of that patient. I find it helpful to examine the general appearance of the parents and the family members in addition to the patient. If they have obvious skin disease, such as rosacea and eczema, that leads me to carefully look for signs of these conditions while examining the patient's eyelids, because that patient is likely to have similar skin conditions and eyelid inflammation. If there's a family history of systemic lupus, it's important to ask the patient if they have joint pain or joint soreness and help them understand the question by asking it in very simple terms. Now, it might seem unusual to ask kids these questions, but keep in mind that pediatric patients with systemic lupus, erythematosus, or juvenile rheumatoid arthritis can have these symptoms. One of the most important things to do in every dry eye case is to try to identify a main contributor to disease, if there is one. That is, try to look for clinical findings that, that's in large part causing most of the ocular surface compromise. This is not evident in all cases, but sometimes there's one clinical finding that's responsible for most of the trouble. 
in our older patients. This can be prominent conjunctival cholesis, floppy eyelid syndrome, superior limbic, limbal keratitis, or eyelid malposition. In our younger patients, it may be allergic conjunctivitis, seborrheic blepharitis, demodex blepharitis, or, or ocular rosacea. The main driver of the patient's symptoms can be a subtle clinical finding, but in most cases, ocular surface compromise is a result of multiple culprits, each contributing on a smaller level to interrupt processes involved in optimal ocular surface maintenance. In addition to the clinical findings listed above, meibomian gland dysfunction, systemic allergies, exposure keratopathy, or incomplete blink, decreased blink rate, systemic medications, and comorbid skin conditions such as rosacea and eczema or dry skin are a few of these potential contributors. Without a doubt, the most common finding in most instances of ocular surface disease and dry eye is meibomian gland dysfunction. This is the same whether the patient is a postmenopausal female or a nine-year-old girl. We don't really expect to see significant meibomian gland disease in our pediatric patients, but it is germane to scrutinize meibomian gland health and function with as much attention in kids as in our older patients. Evaporative dry eye is the most common form of ocular surface disease and dry eye disease in kids as well. This continues to be a bit of a blind spot for many of us. Aqueous deficiency is much less common in the pediatric patient. Knowing that, in most patients, young or old, meibomian gland dysfunction is a major factor in dry eye disease. I've gotten in the habit of carefully evaluating the eyelids of my pediatric patient in order to remind myself of how a young meibomian gland should look like. In my experience, surprisingly, about one out of every 10 younger patients, aged 7 to 15 years, will have early truncation and ductal dilation, tortuosity, or early gland atrophy. How is it that a 9-year-old patient has close to 30% truncation and scant meibomian gland secretion? This situation often involves a systemic comorbidity, but one of the obvious factors in less severe pediatric dry eye is that many kids have more than quadrupled the amount of time that they spend on a screen in the past several years. What we used to call computer vision syndrome is now more appropriately called digital eye strain, and it's undoubtedly disrupting normal ocular surface and tear film processes in the young population. Digital device use is increasingly important, not only for adults, but also for children. Tablets and computers have been increasingly used during global pandemic to help deliver education remotely. The most common adverse effects of prolonged digital device use are incomplete blink and decreased blink rate, which leads to disuse atrophy and of the meibomian glands. If your pediatric patient is a contact lens wearer and mostly in an online school program, it's critically important to discuss visual hygiene habits with the hope that that patient will just get in the habit of performing these elements instinctively. When a pediatric patient presents with ocular surface disease that is refractory to lubrication and topical anti-inflammatory treatment, it's important to think about possible systemic disease associations. The most common are allergy and dermatologic disease, such as eczema, dry skin, and rosacea. Seborrheic endemodex blepharitis can be extremely symptomatic and cause meibomian gland dysfunction when undertreated or left untreated. 
I find the use of tea tree oil and mechanical debridement of the lid to be important home treatments for these patients, in addition to in-office eyelid debridement. Even though we may expect patients with significant eyelid debris to perform daily home therapy, most of my patients need supplemental in-office eyelid debridement treatments, especially kids. Eyelid debridement can be a tough one for them to tolerate, but most kids do well after getting past the initial treatment in the office. After that initial treatment, having the parents take on home eyelid hygiene is key in order to reduce the adverse effects of chronic inflammation on the lids and the meibomian glands of our younger patients. A condition that presents much less commonly in my clinic, most often in patients who have recently immigrated to the United States, is vitamin A deficiency. I've seen only two such cases in my entire career, but it underscores the importance of working closely with the family, a nutritionist, and a pediatrician to resolve the issue. It's crucial to get this diagnosis right, and it sometimes is tough to piece it all together because vitamin A deficiency is not usually top of mind. These patients have severe dryness and need aggressive therapy as dietary changes are implemented. Another important and less common systemic condition to keep in mind when a pediatric patient has significant inflammatory ocular surface disease is Stevens-Johnson syndrome, an uncommon condition with often devastating outcomes. For these patients, vigilance and prompt consultation with the pediatrician is critical. The drugs that most commonly elicit the aggressive immunologic reaction in Stevens-Johnson syndrome are sulfa-derived drugs and ibuprofen. Recognizing and addressing dry eye disease in a pediatric patient can be a challenging but extremely rewarding aspect of optometric eye care. Enjoy your successes with these patients, and don't forget to consider the less common comorbid disease associations. The take home here, for pediatric patients with dry eye, collect as much valuable information as possible from both the parent and the patient. Up next, we'll hear from Kelly Malloy, who is director of the Neuroophthalmic Disease Service at the Eye Institute of Salis University in Philadelphia. She's going to provide a rundown on ocular ptosis and its differential diagnosis, because for some patients, ptosis is more than just a droopy eyelid, and knowing what to look for can save a life. Ptosis, or blepharotosis, is a decrease in the eyelid opening or palpebral aperture. The condition can be either congenital or acquired. Ptosis typically refers to a lack of normal opening of the upper eyelid, resulting in its downward drooping. Less commonly, there can also be a lack of normal opening of the lower eyelid, resulting in its upward placement, referred to as inverse or reverse ptosis. Acquired ptosis can be caused by a number of etiologies ranging from normal aging changes to potentially life-threatening conditions. Generally, ptosis can be filed into one of the following five categories, aponeurotic, traumatic, mechanical, myogenic, or neurogenic. Because ptosis can be a harbinger of a possibly serious underlying neurologic condition, it is imperative to be able to identify the slightest degree of ptosis, even in an asymptomatic individual because the magnitude of ptosis does not indicate its etiology. Although eyelid asymmetry is often an indicator of ptosis, it need not be present. Ptosis can be unilateral or bilateral. 
Eyelid measurements and assessment of eyelid function are imperative to accurately diagnose ptosis. These can easily be performed as part of a comprehensive eye examination. Typically, ptosis is identified by measuring palpebral apertures and or marginal reflex distance one. Palpebral aperture is the distance from upper eyelid margin to lower eyelid margin. MRD1 is the distance from the upper eyelid margin to the corneal light reflex produced from shining a light into the eyes. In order to ensure an accurate measurement for both of these tests, it is important to immobilize the frontalis muscle. To do so, place the palm of one hand on the patient's forehead with a bit of downward pressure to stop him or her from raising the upper lids by use of the frontalis muscle. For both of these measurements, the patient should be looking straight ahead with no head or chin tilt. Additional eyelid measurements include eyelid crease and levator function. The eyelid crease represents the insertion of the levator aponeurosis into the upper eyelid. It can be measured as the distance from the upper eyelid margin to the eyelid crease when the patient is looking down. Note that there can be more than one eyelid crease on each side and that disinsertion of the levator aponeurosis results in a larger measurement or greater distance from the upper eyelid margin. Levator disinsertion or aponeurotic can occur as a result of normal aging or from excessive eye rubbing or tugging as in repetitive rigid contact lens removal. Levator function is defined as maximum excursion of the upper eyelid from down gaze to up gaze and is measured by having the patient look down as far as possible and placing the reference point of a ruler so that it is contiguous with the upper eyelid margin. Without moving the ruler and without the patient moving his or her head, have the patient then look up as far as possible. Where the upper eyelid margin now intersects the ruler, the distance the upper eyelid margin traveled from down gaze to up gaze, that equals the levator function. The levator palpebrae superioris is the strongest of two eyelid muscles that function to open the upper eyelid. It is innervated by the third cranial nerve. Therefore, damage to the levator muscle itself, to its aponeurotic insertion into the upper eyelid, to the third cranial nerve, or to the neuromuscular junction between the muscle and the nerve, as impaired in myasthenia gravis, can each result in a totic upper eyelid. Damage to any of these structures related to the levator palpebrae superioris may result in any degree of ptosis, from slight to complete eyelid closure. The second eyelid muscle that normally functions to open the upper eyelid is the superior tarsal muscle, also known as the Mueller muscle. It originates from the undersurface of the levator palpebrae superioris and inserts into the superior tarsal plate. The Mueller muscle plays only a small role in opening the upper eyelid. Therefore, damage to it or to its sympathetic autonomic innervation results in only a small degree of ptosis of the upper eyelid. Unlike the levator palpebrae superioris, the superior tarsal muscle has a companion muscle that acts to open the lower eyelid. The inferior tarsal muscle inserts into the inferior tarsal plate and is also under sympathetic autonomic innervation. Therefore, neurologic sympathetic autonomic damage, as in Horner syndrome, may result in both a small upper eyelid ptosis and a small lower eyelid reverse ptosis. Because sympathetic autonomic innervation involves not only the tarsal muscles, but also the iris dilator muscle, 
It is equally important to measure pupil size in both bright and dim illumination. A small degree of ptosis in the setting of anisocoria greatest in dim illumination, or even just a smaller pupil on the same side of the ptosis, should raise suspicion for Horner's syndrome. To prove that Horner's syndrome is present in a non-acute and non-painful setting, diagnostic testing with 0.5 or 1% apiclonidine is key. A reversal of anisocoria in which the smaller pupil in the totic eye becomes the larger of the two pupils within one hour after installation of the apiclonidine into both eyes is diagnostic of Horner's syndrome. In cases of suspicious Horner's syndrome that is acute or painful, diagnostic drops should be withheld and the patient should be sent immediately to the emergency department for neuroimaging, which would include CT angiography or MR angiography to rule out carotid dissection. The other potential scenario requiring emergent neuroimaging in the setting of ptosis is a cranial nerve 3 palsy because it could be suggestive of a posterior communicating artery aneurysm. Aside from any degree of ptosis, other clinical features may include limitation of supra, infra, and adductions with a corresponding reversing hyperdeviation and exodeviation that worsens when looking contralaterally to the side of the ptosis. In addition, because parasympathetic autonomic fibers travel on the outside of cranial nerve 3, a larger pupil on the side of the ptosis and or anisocoria greater in bright illumination can also be clinical features concerning for an aneurysmal cranial nerve 3 palsy. In the setting of ptosis, it is critical to perform not only pupil size measurements in both bright and dim illumination, but also ductions and cover testing in multiple positions of gaze. Another cause of ptosis combined with abnormal motilities is myasthenia gravis. Although myasthenia gravis does not cause pupillary abnormalities, it can cause other telltale clinical findings such as weakness of the abicularis oculi muscle and positive results on fatigue and ice pack tests. Suspicion of myasthenia gravis usually requires outpatient workup and neurology referral, but it can be emergent in the setting of a myasthenic crisis. When dealing with an eyelid asymmetry, it is also helpful to take exophthalmometry measurements because pseudotosis can be caused by anophthalmus of the eye with a smaller palpebral aperture or by proptosis and or eyelid retraction of the fellow eye. Another common cause of pseudotosis is dramatic chalasis. Careful history taking and past photo review, along with detailed measurements of efferent visual function, as we have noted, can help determine how to characterize ptosis, the need for additional workup, urgency, and potential treatment options. After concerning underlying etiologies are excluded, the focus can be placed on treatment. Although surgery has been the mainstay of ptosis treatment to date, there is now a new option in UPNIC, which was approved by the FDA last year for the treatment of acquired blepharotosis. UPNIC is an ophthalmic alpha adrenergic agonist and can be instilled once daily to raise the upper eyelid and improve superior visual field by activating the superior tarsal muscle. So in conclusion, Eye care providers should assess all patients for possible ptosis, even those who are asymptomatic. Making eyelid assessment a regular part of comprehensive eye examinations can have a positive effect on your patient's quality of life, both in terms of morbidity and mortality, 
as well as visual function and cosmesis. So start taking those eyelid measurements today. To summarize very briefly, careful history taking and past photo review, along with detailed measurements of efferent visual function, can help determine how to characterize a patient's ptosis, determine the need for additional workup, urgency, and treatment. Moving right along to our last regular article of the episode, let's talk ocular melanoma, specifically diagnostic and prognostic factors every optometrist should be aware of. Here's Jonathan Andrews, president and CEO of Andrews Eye Corporation and owner of Optometric Associates in New Holland, Pennsylvania. He explains that although intraocular melanomas are rare in everyday practice, it's important to understand their incidence, origin, morphology, treatment methods, and overall outcomes. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. An 81-year-old white woman reported to our office with a complaint of vision worsening in her left eye for a duration of two months. She noticed that her left eye had also become slightly more light-sensitive, accompanied by a mild dull ache from inside of her eye. The best corrected vision was 20-25 in her right eye and 20-400 in her left anterior segment examination revealed sectoral injection of the superior to superior temporal conjunctival vessels of the left eye. It was apparent that the iris root was pulled away from its normal limbal insertion. Further examination of the iris root suggested strongly that the ciliary body had proliferated enough to displace the iris at the root and the ciliary body proliferations had begun to fill the angle. Gonioscopy revealed an atypical superior temporal angle with a large brown mass between the iris and the choroid, 0.5 millimeters nasally. Dilated fundus evaluation revealed a posterior IOL displaced slightly inferior nasally and a large melanoma of what seemed ciliary body in origin. Sentinel vessels were apparent in the superior to superior temporal quadrant of the episclera, especially apparent after other vessels were blanched with phenylephrine installation. The melanoma extended posteriorly with maximum diameter of about 10.2 millimeters on B-scan ultrasound. Peripheral retinal evaluation also revealed an associated serous retinal detachment. The patient was diagnosed with a ciliary body-based melanoma and referred urgently to retinal oncology. The mass was further classified as a iridocilio-choroidal melanoma. The patient was scheduled for enucleation and additional workup for metastases. No evidence of metastatic disease was found within the chest, intrapelvic, or intra-abdominal areas on CT imaging. Complete blood count and differential, comprehensive metabolic panels, and lactate dehydrogenase were all within normal limits. Histological analysis was performed on the enucleated eye. Spindle-shaped melanocytes comprised the majority of the tumor with rare epithelioid cells. Lymphocytic infiltration was present. The tumor did not break through the sclera. A central cavitation indicated that the necrotic changes were starting. 
light microscopy also revealed invasion of the iris root, trabecular meshwork, melanocytes, and macrophages in the trabecular meshwork opposite to the primary tumor site. The timeline of this case from the first appointment to the enucleation was seven days, including initial detection, diagnosis, referral to a retinal physician who specialized in ocular oncology, consultation, oncology workup, and enucleation. Within 13 days of our initial appointment, the pathology department had completed its assessment of the specimen and other testing. The uveal tissue of the eye consists of three structures, iris, choroid, and ciliary body. Choroidal melanomas represent 85% of uveal melanomas. 10% are ciliary body and 5% are iris tissue. Extrapolating from known incidence of ocular tumors, a ciliary-based melanoma has an, an incident in the U.S. of about 1 in 1 million persons per year. Initial testing for metastasis includes liver panels, CBC with differentials, and chest x-rays. If any of these are abnormal, further testing such as liver ultrasound and PET-CT scans or MRIs of the chest and abdomen are required. It is not uncommon to order this entire battery of tests as soon as a suspicious lesion is detected. Fine needle biopsy may be used transclerally to confirm the presence of a malignancy. Differential diagnosis for choroidal melanoma should include choroidal hemangioma, choroidal metastases, choroidal osteoma, choroidal neurofibroma, peripheral melanocytoma, benign lymphoid tumor, extramacular discoform lesions, posterior scleritis, localized choroidal detachment with hemorrhage, congenital hypertrophy of retinal pigmented epithelial cells, RPE hyperplasia, RPE window defects, hemorrhagic retinal detachment, retinoschisis with hemorrhage, intraocular foreign body, granuloma, acquired retinal hemangioma, and traumatic angle recession. Common risk factors for choroidal melanoma include white race of Eastern European descent, light iris color, blonde hair, oculodermal melanocytosis, genetic factors, and occupational associations. Unlike with cutaneous melanomas, evidence regarding sunlight exposure sparking melanotic growth is weak at best. Race seems to prevail as the most significant risk factor as uveal melanomas are reported to be 150 times more common in whites than blacks. About two-thirds of uveal melanomas arise in white, whites of European descent who comprise only 13% of the global population. Patients with choroidal melanomas are symptomatic 75% of the time with flashes, floaters, or decreased visual acuity as their main symptoms. Uveal melanomas are increasingly prominent in an aging population with peak incidence at around 70 years of age. At this age, the incident jumps from 24.3 per million for men and 17.8 per million for women. Less than 1% of uveal tumors are found in individuals less than 20 years of age. Small malignant melanomas of the uveal tissue can be found 
to differentiate from benign nevi clinically. Colors may range anywhere from a lighter off-white to a dark brown to black, including greens, oranges, and yellows. Ciliary body-based tumors often have a, a poor prognosis than choroidal tumors, which may be due to the delayed diagnosis. Ciliary body melanomas can invade the anterior chamber, causing seeding and, in some cases, iris heterochromia. The five-year survival rate of a ciliary body melanoma is hard to determine due to the rarity of the lesion. For anyone with a metastatic uveal melanoma, survival rates are poor, with a median of less than six months. The five-year survival rate is 84% for small choroidal melanomas, 68% for medium choroidal melanomas, and 47% for large choroidal melanomas. Ciliary body melanomas commonly present as elevated dark brown lesions seen on peripheral fundus examination. Associations include sentinel episcleral vessels, segmental cataracts, IOL displacement, and in some cases extensions into the sclera. Anterior segment photography along with ultrasound biomicroscopy can aid in determining size, location, color, surface characteristics, depth, and vascularity. A key prognostic factor is cell typing using the calendar classification system. In this system, it, as modified by McLean and others in 1978, cell, uh, tumor cells are histologically classified into types and subtypes. Spindle A, spindle B, mixed, and epithelioid. Subcategories of tumors are spindle cell nevus, spindle cell melanoma, mixed cell melanoma, and mixed spindle and epithelioid. Spindle cell tumors have a better prognosis than those with epithelioid, mixed, or necrotic cells. The 15-year survival rate after enucleation are 100% for spindle cell nevi, 72% for spindle cell melanomas, and 37% for mixed epithelioid and necrotic cell type tumors. Using both diameter and thickness, tumors are graded from 1 to 4. Kaplan-Meier survival rates can then be derived. Using this grading of largest basal diameter and thickness, metastasis rates were 2, 4, and 8 times higher in stages 2, 3, and 4 when compared with stage 1. Diagnosis of small ocular melanoma versus a choroidal nevus can be difficult due to many overlapping features. A choroidal nevus, as defined by the Collaborative Ocular Melanoma Study, is a melanocytic choroidal lesion less than 5 millimeters in largest basal dimension and less than 1 millimeter in apical height. Anything larger should be classified as a small choroidal melanoma. Choroidal nevi have a prevalence of 4.6 to 7.9% in the U.S. population. A retrospective medical record review, including 2,514 referred choroidal nevi, suggested a 7% risk of transformation into choroidal melanoma. The same study also suggested risk factors that can be predictive of nevus growth. 
These factors include thickness greater than 2 millimeters, any subretinal fluid, symptoms, orange pigment, nevus margin within 3 millimeters of the optic disc, ultrasonographic hollowness, absence of halo depigmentation, and absence of drusen. A nevus with no risk factors showed 3% growth at 5 years, 38% with one risk factor, and 50% with three or more risk factors. Other prognostic factors include mitotic activity, extraocular extensions, location, chromosomal abnormalities, loss of human leukocyte antigen, expression, size and variability in nucleolar size, necrosis, pigmentation, lymphocytic infiltration, and melophagic infiltration. Genetically, uveal melanoma can have loss of chromosome 3, 1p, 6q, 8, 9p, or gain of 1q, 6p, or 8q, 18. Chromosome 3 has been a determining factor as its loss has been shown to reduce survival rate from 100% to 50%. Gene expression profiling has been used to classify uveal melanoma into class 1 and 2 subtypes. Disomy 3 and gain of 6p make up class 1, whereas monosomy 3, 1, and 8p with a gain of 8q make up class 2. Class 2 gene expression profiles have been associated with a poorer prognosis. Monosomy 3, trisomy 8q have very poor prognosis, whereas loss of HLA1 expression is deemed to have a better prognosis. The most prominent gene implicated in a metastatic role of uveal melanoma is BAP1 on chromosome 3. Other genes including SF. 3B1 and EIF1AX have been associated with a better prognosis. Genes that are present in both choroidal melanoma and choroidal nevi are GNAQ and GNA11, but the roles they play in nevi growth and metastasis are uncertain. The five-year survival rate of ocular melanoma, if the melanoma does not spread outside of the eye is 85%. Largest tumor diameter seems to be the best prognostic indicator, just as important as cell type. These prognostic predictions are calculated assuming that the affected eye had already been enucleated. The goal of treatment for choroidal melanoma is to preserve vision and prevent metastasis. Treatment of the primary tumor is guided by size, location, general health of the patient, and patient preference. Therapies for uveal melanoma include brachytherapy, charged particle radiation, photocoagulation, transpupillary thermal therapy, photodynamic therapy, photocoagulation, plaque therapy plus hyperthermia, cryotherapy, local resection, anti-nucleation. If the lesions are small, observation may be indicated. Most cases in the United States are treated with plaque brachytherapy, although charged particle radiotherapy, proton beam therapy, and surgical excision have been shown to be effect effective.
brachytherapy and external charge particle beam therapy have been used in the treatment of small to medium-sized tumors. Regular ocular examination should be performed following brachytherapy to assess for cataract, exudative retinal detachment, radiation retinopathy, papillopathy, and other radiation-induced damage. Charged particle radiation therapy is used to treat medium to large tumors that may be good candidates for brachytherapy. Significantly improved local control, eye preservation, and disease-free progression with charged particle therapy as compared to iodine-125 in the treatment of choroidal or ciliary body melanoma was demonstrated in a randomized trial. Laser photocoagulation of tumor tissue is associated with a high rate of complications. Transpupillary thermotherapy using an infrared laser to penetrate the surface of the tumor is suitable only for small tumors or marginal recurrences following proton therapy. Transretinal or transscleral local resection can be performed, but complications include retinal detachment, vitreous hemorrhage, local recurrence, and iatrogenic tumor spread. Enucleation was long thought the treatment of choice until the COM study shed light on survival rates of patients with medium-sized tumors who were enucleated and those who, treat, who were treated with iodine-125. Vision-sparing treatments should be considered unless, in select cases, there is little probability of retaining vision. When enucleation was elected as a first-line therapy, however, patients had less anxiety during follow-up visits than patients treated with brachytherapy. The 10-year survival rate was 17% following iodine-125 brachytherapy and 18% following enucleation. Although intraocular melanomas are rare in everyday practice, it is important to be educated on the incidence, origin, morphology, treatment methods, and overall outcomes. Primary eye care providers should stress to all patient populations the importance of yearly dilated eye exams. Systemic workup and monitoring with oncology services should be continued for a lifetime after successful eradication of a choroidal melanoma. Early detection is crucial to discover the conversion of a nevus to a melanoma. Efficient, integrated medical care is essential for caring for patients with choroidal melanoma. Understanding basic concepts such as those reviewed here can help to analyze difficult choroidal lesions. Dr. Andrews sure packed a lot of great information into that article. And if you're like me, you appreciate any visual components that go along with articles. If that's the case, the next time you have a chance, go to modernod.com and click on any of the articles you just heard to check out the photos, tables, etc. that you don't get to see in the podcast version. Okay, I will keep you in suspense no longer. It's time for the up-close interview between Mod's associate editor, Katie Herman, and Jackie Garlick, owner of Envision Optometry in Boston and editor and founder of the weekly 2020 Glance newsletter. Hi, Jackie. Thanks so much for joining us and being our up-close feature um, for this issue. Are you ready to get started? I am. Let's do it. 
Great. As you were figuring out your career path, was there another option besides optometry? Why did you choose optometry? And was there any particular experience that influenced your decision? Yeah, I initially wanted to be a veterinarian and I actually graduated with a BS in agriculture. Oh. I was in, I know I, <laughs> I was in, except I, interestingly, I, I kill all plants. I feel like I don't know anything about agriculture. Side note. I was in, I ended up being, I was in my third year of undergrad when I decided that like, wasn't a great fit for me. And then I started exploring some other career options. I graduated, still wasn't totally sure what I wanted to do. I ended up moving to Panama for a year and then volunteered at an eye clinic there. And I really fell in love, fell in love with it. I fell in love with the immediate impact you could have on someone's life by prescribing something as simple as glasses or contacts. What made you specialize in dry eye? I really like the nuances of dry eye. I used to think that treating it was very straightforward, but I've learned how complex the disease process is and how rewarding it can be to treat it. You founded 2020 Glance, a weekly e-newsletter for optometrists. How did you come up with the idea? So I started writing 2020 Glance because I couldn't find an easy way to stay up to date with like clinically relevant news. I mean, I attended all of my CEs every year, but there were many things that were happening day to day that I was just missing. And after I like pulled a lot of my colleagues, I discovered that many of them felt the same. That's great. I'm sure a lot of people are very thankful for that. <laughs> it actually sort of backfired on me because I was looking for something quick that I could read. And now I read like 7,000 oh, yeah. times more than I wanted to read. <laughs> well, now you're always up to date. <laughs> that I am. That I am. Yes. <laughs> so you are a major in the Air National Guard. So first, thank you for your service. Second, what made you decide to join? What have you learned from your position in the Guard and how do you balance those duties with running your own practice as well as family time? So my father was in the military and I grew up hearing stories about his time in the service and I found it all really interesting. And then when I graduated, I had a ton of student loan debt. And the Air Force was a great way um, to kind of help pay down my student loan debt while also serving my country. And as far as like the balancing of it all, that it's exactly that, a balancing act. Some days I do it better than others, <laughs> but making a prioritized to-do list is my saving grace. <laughs> um, you've lived in Thailand and Panama. What did you enjoy most about those experiences living abroad? So I, I really liked how they pushed me outside my comfort zone. It was a wonderful experience to see other cultures and to know what it feels like not to be able to communicate because of a language barrier. I have never, I had never in my life experienced that. Obviously I just been in the U S so anytime, just like little things, trying to find a certain place. If you didn't, I didn't speak the language, I was sort of struggling with that. So <laughs> I do remember feeling really grateful when I moved back to the US and everyone could understand what I was saying after like a year of being like, ah, I'm struggling stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that was a great feeling. <laughs> um, so what is your favorite thing to do when you have time to spend with your family? Um, my favorite thing to do is travel. Um, obviously we haven't been able to do that quite as much, or we're just doing more travel where we're driving to places, but definitely, 
um, exploring new places is one of my favorite things. Do you have a favorite place that you've gone to? So my husband and I do a trip. Um, well, we were doing it every year where we would go to Death Valley, which I think a lot of people think of Death Valley as just like blah, desert, <laughs> not great. It is like so beautiful and it's quiet. And I think my priorities have changed with vacations now because I have two little kids. So now I just really crave like quiet yes. spaces. <laughs> so um, Death Valley is a big time favorite of mine. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for um, being Mod's Up Close feature. It was so great speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Email me at kroman at bmctoday.com. Find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. As always, stay healthy, be well, and I'll meet you back here next month.